You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. And I want to welcome you all to Poetry and Conversation. Thank you so much for coming. So tonight is really special. Um, we're thrilled to be hosting poets Jonah Colson, Edgar Kunz. Um, I'm saying that right, right? Okay, okay thank you. Um, Jonah Colson, Edgar Kunz, and Tanya Olson. And they're each going to read for a little bit. Then we'll have some Q&A right here at the table. And then they will each read a closing poem. And afterwards, there will be some time to um, purchase their books. Um, Also, just so you know, uh, we have broadsides of the poems that are free, and they're back on the table there. So you could have the poet sign your broadside if they're willing, um, even if you don't purchase a book. Um, So I'm going to begin by introducing Ed... um, I'm going to begin by introducing Jenna. Um, Jenna Colson's first poetry collection, Said Through Glass, won the Jean Feldman Poetry Prize from the Washington Writers Publishing House. He received his BA in English and Spanish from Goucher, a Master of Arts in Linguistics from George Mason University, and a Master of Fine Arts degree from American University. His poems have appeared in Plowshares, The Southern Review, The Massachusetts Review, and elsewhere. His translations and interviews can be found in Prairie Schooner, Tupelo Quarterly, and The Writer's Chronicle. He is an associate professor of English as a second language at Montgomery College in Maryland, and he lives in Washington, D.C. Jonah's poems lift the veil from ordinary life to show an eerie silence and strangeness on the other side, a dreamlike experience in which we are one with sea creatures, with bees and flowers, revealing the peril in our loves and our essential loneliness. This vision is disturbing as well as lovely. We drink in its brilliance the way the poet gazes at his mother after eye surgery. Quote, I felt like I was catching the sun in an intimate moment. Unquote. Poet Elizabeth Spires writes, The concerns of Said Through Glass are large and haunting. Said Through Glass is an original, unsettling debut from a poet of considerable gifts. Please help me to welcome Jonah Colson. Thanks for that wonderful introduction. It's a pleasure to be reading here this evening with fellow poets Edgar and Tanya. So wonderful to meet you. Am I sound okay? Yes? Am I all right? Thank you. All right, so I'm going to read a few poems this evening. In my book, I have a series of poems I call dialogue poems. So they sort of have a very ordinary question. And then the answer is something sort of extraordinary, something that you don't normally say or respond to. So the first poem I'd like to read is called Passport Control. We've all been through passport security where you have to get into another country. And I think that if you gave these answers to the passport control officer, you may not be allowed into the country. So we'll see how this works. Passport Control. What brings you to this country? 
My mother once told me that my breath is strong enough to diamond a grain of sand. What is the nature of your visit? After the plane took off, I felt gravity surrender. There is no safety. How long will you be here? It depends on what you consider love. It could be days or something brief said through glass. What are your plans? The cabin steamed as we passed the equator. All my plans got wet and I was showered with the warm mist. What hotel are you staying in? Another room is the same as the first. If I close my eyes, I am back in my boyhood bedroom, years collapsing under my feet. Will you be traveling outside the country? I learn borders like some men learn kitchens, blundering through the knife-edged drawers and slicing my fingers like cherries. I tend to leave stains. Have a good stay. My body is awake. There are birds that only follow rivers. They alight on small rocks and feed on the wing in the morning sun glare. Read another dialogue poem. This one's called Doctor to Patient. And if you gave these answers to your doctor, perhaps you would end up in a different place. What brings you here today? A pain. It, run down, it runs down my arm during the night. When did it start? A few years ago when I saw a bee land on a mint leaf. How does the pain feel? When it snows like electricity. Are you taking anything for it? I read a story about a woman who vanished. Maybe she just turned herself into a fish. May I examine your arm? Touch is strange. I wonder if fish feel it when you slice their bellies. Does this hurt? There is no rule that states I must remain human. Can you bend your arm? When I was five, I broke this arm because it wanted attention. I think it still does. Does it hurt only at night? Yes, I dream I am a thin man slicing down tobacco leaves large like green oars. Let me check your blood pressure. My heart is beating in 16th notes. I'm going to listen to your heart. I've never seen the heart of a fish. They don't sell that at the market. Everything is fine. Is there anything else? I feel like a man with the rope around his neck. So since the introduction, I think it referenced some poems I have in here about my parents, specifically my mother. I'll read this one poem that I've never actually read at a reading before. I often find that even celebrities, if you see pictures of them, they can have so much done to their face, no matter what they've done. They can look like a totally other person. But if you look at their hands, that still tells age, doesn't it? My mother's hands. A tapestry of silk, once stretched tight, now hangs loose and yields with creases and paths. The skin on her hands is almost nothing, yet I know she held me, malleable and male, in a yellow bolt of cloth. 
her fingers trimmed back as far as possible to avoid scratching newborn skin. Now her fingers turn and twist against themselves like stems of wild roses, reaching out into delicate air. When she holds me at the door, I know her hands understand the cool love to fever, the light to heat, and chests of days that close around us. And I can sometimes feel her fingers straighten and her skin tense, vowing to hold strong and smooth as if years collapsed and the nerves refused to age. This is another odd poem about a procedure my mother had when I was very young. She had a detached retina, and they had it sew it back together. It's called Retina. No sudden darkness, no curse, but a slow black curtain falling over the eye, almost like being born again, my mother said. And the next day, surgery, to fasten the retina-like wallpaper back to the frazzled optic nerve and satisfy its hunger for impulse and clear astonishment of light. When I saw her after, I felt like I was catching the sun in an intimate moment. Still drowsy from halothane and smelling like blood, she slid off the hospital bed toward the bleached bathroom, the bruised eye beginning to focus the first wave of vision with the bandage removed, the angry slivers aligning to exert her restored sight to the raw, unmediated glare, while I held fast to her and we both stared until it hurt. They asked us some questions before today's reading, and this was one that I enjoy reading. It's a very small poem. It's about my father. Lesson. It wasn't until a few years before he died when I came down the stairs on a Saturday morning and saw my father by the kitchen window, shirtless, ironing fresh blue tea towels, that I understood why my mother fell in love. Read two more poems. Winter's coming, so maybe I should read something about winter here. Oh. We'll stay here. This is called The Last Time I Saw My Father. The last time I saw my father, sound and marrow-filled, he was standing on the front porch, almost the weight of a ghost. As I waved goodbye, I felt a nerve twitch, like a dog's ear batting a fly. He never sold me the world. He never said that people are good. But the next morning, when he stopped like a hare snapped in a steel trap, my name knelt down beside him, and the smallest sigh became a lullaby. I touched his hand, and like any good son, straightened his dark hair before they carried him out into the air. something a little more uplifting. I don't really have any happy poems, so I don't know if that's going to happen. 
All right, we'll end with a little bit of love tonight. This poem is called A Room Cool as Pearls. A room cool as pearls is something I want to last forever. A sun throwing dawn across the air. The sounds of breathing through space like hair. A body familiar and satin across thin blue sheets. The way to hold on is afterwards so clear. And perhaps this is our time to amaze each other. Thank you. Thank you, Joan. That was really lovely. Um, okay, now I'm going to introduce Edgar. Edgar Kuntz is the author of the poetry collection Tap Out, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt this year, which was a New York Times new and noteworthy book. His work has been supported by fellowships and awards from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Academy of American Poets, the McDowell Colony, Vanderbilt University, and Stanford, where he was a Wallace Stegner Fellow. He lives in Baltimore, where he teaches at Goucher, and in the Newport MFA at Save Regina University. One of the meanings of Tap Out is to quit, and Tap Out is a book that takes leave of the world of the poet's upbringing, a rugged blue-collar world ruled by what poet Adrienne Matika calls, quote, damaged systems of masculinity, unquote. The poet never condemns the people who live by these systems, however, but looks on them with love. In the opening poem, for example, he depicts his father's misdemeanors with accuracy, but also shows his innate goodness and his suffering. In syllables sharp as stones, quote, the river stones sharp underfoot, the wind. I hold him like this in mind all afternoon, unquote. Kunz's poems, Adrian Matika writes, search constantly for better ways of being human. Please help me to welcome Edgar Kunz. Hey. Thanks for being here. What a joy to meet Jonah and Tanya. Am I good with the volume? Can everyone hear me okay? Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, and thanks for that intro. That was lovely. I've been on the road a lot lately. Uh, I just got back from New York uh, late yesterday, and uh, it feels really good to come and do a reading in this uh, city that I love. Um, I'm going to read that first poem first. It's called After the Hurricane. I used to live in Baltimore. I just moved here. I moved back here from, uh, from California. And, um, and when I lived here, I went to college here at the place that I teach now. And after college, I got a job at a farm in upstate Maryland. And uh, this was around the time of Hurricane Sandy, if you remember this one. Flooded all the subway tunnels in New York and knocked down a bunch of trees and fence line at the, at the farm that I worked on. And uh, I wrote this poem trying to talk about that, and it ended up being a poem that was more about my father. And now the hurricane stuff is totally out of the poem. Uh, so the title doesn't make any sense anymore. But I didn't have the heart to change it. Um, it's called After the Hurricane. 300 miles north. My father beds down in a van by the Connecticut River. Snow tires rim deep in the silt. He has a wool horse blanket tacked inside the windshield. A pair of extra pants bunched into a pillow. He has a paper bag of partially smoked butts, a paw socks cap, a zippo, 
He has state-sponsored cell phone minutes and a camo jacket hung on the side view to dry. He can see the Costco parking lot through the trees, swelling and emptying out. He wants to fix things with his wife. He wants a couch to crash on. He wants a drink. He wants sex. He has a few cans of kidney beans and a tin of ShopRite tuna. Wrinkled plastic piss bottles line the dash. Sometimes he walks out to the river and lets the wind sift his lank and matted hair. Sometimes he peels his socks and stands in the murky current and thinks about his wife, the birthmark on her neck, her one toe longer than the others, her freckled hands. He tries to hold her hands in his mind. He tries to remember the birth years of his sons. He tries to make sense of the papers he signed, the icy water wetting the hem of his pants, the river stone sharp underfoot, the wind. I hold him like this in my mind all afternoon. It's nice to get a little background noise of the library continuing on without us, you know. Uh, I lived for a while in Tennessee. I didn't have very good health insurance, and so I had to find this. Um, there are these places called free clinics, right, where you can get some health care. And, uh, and I had a tooth issue. And so this is a poem that's uh, about that. It's called Franklin Free Clinic. Franklin is uh, in uh, Nashville County, or it's the same county as Nashville. She drops the tooth in the pan packs my cheek to sop the blood. I'm telling her about the mole on my hand I am sure is cancer. Runs in my family, my aunt with the scar smeared between her breasts, my grandfather's femur, femur riddled with it. She tells me to relax, I'm fine. I am not fine, and she pretends not to hear. I tried telling her about my ex, the pale seam at her throat where after months of mysterious sickness, after thrush, fever, bone deep pain, they lifted a mass slick as an avocado pit. I shape my hands to show the largeness of it. I tell her how I'd lie awake at night and look, how my own throat caught. She pulls the cotton from my mouth, coughs into her elbow hands me two tiny tubes of toothpaste, one soft bristled brush. She's like, I'm a dentist, dude. I can't, I, I can't help you. <laughs> Sorry about your mole. If I can find it, thanks so much for making those broadsides. They're gorgeous. They're really lovely. I'm going to, I'm going to read. Hey, welcome. If I can find it quickly, I'm going to read it. Yeah, okay. This is, uh, this is kind of a sexy fish poem, if you're into that kind of thing. Uh, the title is Cabacona. It's a, it's a uh, lake in upstate Minnesota. It's actually, if, you know, if you're familiar with the poet Robert Bly, he, uh, his family had a cabin on that lake, and he wrote uh, Silence in the Snowy Fields while he was staying there. Anyway, so after a bad breakup, I went up there and uh, spent some time. It's called Cabicona. Drifting in a borrowed old town on a chain lake outside Bemidji. Bluegills nosing the surface. Birches and their bright silences on the shore. Two weeks gone and nothing is easier. 
remembering her thumb tracing my hip bone, early sun running its hands through our hair. The shyness gone out of us then, all sweat and a reckless need, pressing hard, trying to break through into feeling. I lean out over the gunnel and trail my fingers, watch the walleye flicker in their private dark, wanting that, to be open-mouthed and simple, to let the cold water touch me all over. A weird desire poem. Mm, I like that one. I'm going to read just a couple more. Uh, this one's about, about uh, house-sitting. It's something I really love. I love to house-sit, which is not something that people who are offering you their house to sit want to hear, you know? They want you to feel pretty neutral about the idea, right? Like, I'll do it for you. I'm like, yes. Uh, I think it appeals to me because I get to slip kind of sideways into another person's life, you know, surrounded by their things. Uh, my routines change, you know? I become a slightly different person than I was before. I think that's a basic human desire, right? How do we live more than one life? House-sitting is maybe one way to do it. You know? Writing poems might be another one. It's called Farm Sitting. Oh, also, I have to take care of a horse in this poem, which I should never be trusted to do, uh, and I found it very stressful. Farm Sitting. Most days the same with minor variations. Flat blue of the 5 a.m. kitchen. Two scoops of feed in a plastic bucket. A small bowl of yogurt and an hour stacking what the ice brought down overnight. I was happy. I slept in their bed. I read the mysteries on their shelves. Always something precious gone. Someone hot on the trail. I walked and borrowed boots across the frozen pasture and back each morning. Each morning the feed, the spigot, the horse dragging its bulk against the stall. I'd walk out nights and stand on the same trampled spot in the yard and listen to the cold stirring in the cheap grass, dull glow of a town on the horizon, hiss of snow. I'd lie in their bed under three heavy cotton blankets and worry about the horse and the dwindling supplies. It was a life, and it was not mine. To sleep, I imagined the great slabs of granite buried slantwise in the hills. To sleep, I counted the measures ticked out in the porcelain tub, slow drip to keep the pipes from freezing. I really hunger for those moments now, you know, when life slows down to just a trickle. It's almost not happening. We're surrounded by so much happening so quickly all the time, <laughs> you know. Um, I just made three to-do lists today. One is a to-do list. One is an urgent to-do list. And one is you're already three weeks late and everyone's pissed at you to-do list, <laughs> you know. I'll read two more. Is that okay? Yeah. Here's one. Here's a poem I wrote for my mom. A lot of the book has to do with my dad uh, because he was such a problem for me, such a complicated person to try to get on the page. Uh, and then I realized, right, uh, women in my life have saved me, right? Uh, my mother is, is one of the most important people in my life, and she got basically no airtime in the book. So I wrote this one very late, and I put it in as a, like, hey, love you, mom, <laughs> you know? 
This is, uh, this is called salvage. And it starts with a, a list of jobs that I've had. Uh, some of them will make sense right away, and some of them maybe don't make that much sense. And that's okay, because they didn't always make sense to me either. Um, but I did them, and I paid my rent, and it worked out okay. It's called salvage. Still somewhere in me the summer spent driving steel into the wet earth. Heft and swing of the mattock, my blistered hands, black flies rising like steam. The tables I served. The law firms I hustled from one zip line to another. Classroom where I taught economics to the medicated kids of bus drivers and stevedores. Swept clean boulevards of the city that paid me to snap a picture of every downtown business. Jot the names and hours in a spiral-bound book. Somewhere in me, the failed industrial towns of New England, with their posh English names, Weymouth, Bridgeport, Lowell, Worcester, their dead cars, their factories and silk mills converted and upsold to commuters somewhere, the third-floor walk-up we lived in longest. Cracked plaster and single pane, plastic paneling painted to look like real wood, and my stepmother, my real mom, Bending over the glossy stack of star market mailers, hands thin, approximate, bright scars on the backs of her wrists where the surgeries didn't take. And me, problem kid with a mushroom cut and his shirt tucked into his sweats, clipping the dollar offs, the half offs, the buy one get ones, the buy one get twos, the store issued doublers shoulder to shoulder on the kitchen floor and the afternoon stretching on into no kind of heaven I could have understood then of peeling linoleum and the drone of interstate traffic, of wick checks, name brand knockoffs, the gray stamps card made to pass as a regular visa, where we are allowed to know exactly what we can have and keep and what it will cost. This is the last one right. D does everyone know what Bitcoin is? <laughs> uh, yeah, cryptocurrency. The book's rangy, you know. I don't know. I let a couple things in that don't seem to make much sense. Yeah. Uh, I, I moved to California. I went through a bad breakup at the same time, so I ended up sleeping on a friend's porch for a while. And it just so happens that that friend has turned into the foremost expert in digital currencies in the United States. He was on the cover of Forbes magazine. Uh, he runs a cryptocurrency hedge fund now that uh, he gets to hang out with, like the Golden State Warriors and stuff. Uh, on the cover of Forbes magazine, he has a crazy Wayne Gretzky mullet, and he's flipping a coin into the camera. He's wearing a tuxedo. I love the coin part especially because the coins aren't real coins. Uh, you know, it's like a weird, yeah, yeah, virtual, <laughs> virtual reality exactly. Uh, this this poem's called Interim. Uh, and thanks again for listening. Thanks for being here. Interim on the glassed-in back porch of a friend's house on Folsom, I slept three weeks on a heap of patterned wool blankets a large Ziploc of granola, and a jar of pistachios on the sill. I woke to bus traffic in the floorboards and sun on my face, drank thin coffee, and scoured the listings for a studio someplace more possible. Each day, nothing. And each day, I'd pace the bright, narrow side streets with my friend, who was taking time off and who was an expert in digital currencies. I'd tell him about the collapse of my marriage, and he'd tell me about the distant servers that mine electronic coins by solving complex equations. So the specialized equipment required for this kind of work. 
I would ask him basic questions and he would answer patiently. The coins are encrypted code. The code is the currency. Value is determined by speculation. Those days, every detail had the glimmer of potential cruelty. Hot pink curtain caught in a shut window. Drainpipe signed King Baby in whiteout pen. Paper bag of potatoes rotting in the trunk of the car I borrowed to retrieve a crate of books from storage. I called a man about a place above a Thai restaurant and lied about how much I make in a year. He was from Pittsburgh. We talked about rain. He said he'd call later to tell me if I got it. On another walk, I asked my friend more questions. Will it replace cash? Yes. Is it untraceable? Yes. Uh, what happens when they run out of equations? A bus hummed past, skimming the lowest branches of the ficus tree, giving us shade. It's not like that, he said. It could go on forever. I agree, that was really wonderful. And now I'm going to introduce our third poet, Tanya. Tanya Olson lives in Silver Spring, Maryland, and is a lecturer in English at UMBC. Her first book, Boyishly, was published by Yes Yes Books in 2013 and received a 2014 American Book Award. Her second book, Stay, was released by Yes Yes in 2019. In 2010, she won a Discovery Boston Review Prize, and she was named a 2011 Lambda Fellow by the Lambda Literary Foundation. Her poem, 54 Prints, was chosen for inclusion in Best American Poems 2015 by Sherman Alexie. The publisher describes Stay as, quote, a broad American exploration of what it costs to remain in a place an idea and identity, as well as what it costs to leave these things." Close quote. The poems enact staying and going in their own music, especially their thrilling use of repetition, crossing back and forth over vacancies in the poet's own life and the life of our nation. They help us experience absence as presence, filling us with a strange ache, part joy, part longing. Quote, the wheel go round while you sit still, Oh, Lord, yes, it most certainly do, yes, it still do, close quote. Poet Barton Smock writes about, quote, the radiance of how deeply the book disappears. Please help me to welcome Tanya Olson. Thank you very much. So um, I'm going to read, uh, I guess, uh, three poems. Uh, tonight for, I guess, with the closing poem. And tonight I chose some poems that um, the book uses a lot of ideas of American music to kind of think about how we tell ourselves stories about how to change or how to remain the same as a self or as a country. Um, and so these poems all sort of um, uh, use uh, music to think about. And uh, I'm going to start uh, with uh, 54 prints. There are 54 Goldilocks planets. 
54 planets not too hot, 54 planets not too cold, 54 planets where the living is just right for that particular planetary zone. So 54 planets like Earth, but not Earth. Similar, not the same. 54 planets close, but different. Different, except for Prince. I would die for you, Prince. Purple Rain Prince. Paisley Park Prince. Ejaculating Guitar Prince. High-heeled Boots Prince. Assless Pants Prince. Nosy's in the Truth Prince. Won't salute a flag Prince. Doesn't believe in time Prince. Wrote slave upon his face, Prince. Took an unpronounceable symbol for his name, Prince. Chicka, 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 ah, Prince. 54 planets and every planet with a Prince exactly the same as the one we know here on Earth. 54 lace, 54 canes, 54 planets, 54 Prince. These 54 Prince eat 54 of our worries, the 54 worries become 54 songs, 54 songs made of 54 bars, 54 bars using 54 chords, 54 downbeats where the prince pick up the worries, 54 offbeats to lay the worries down again. 54 worrisome skank beat prince birth 54 worryful funked drenched songs. Birth of these songs, the prince gather round Lake Minnetonka when the cherry moon smiles they thrust under their heads. Into the waters they sick up our old worries, freed of our worries, the prince grow ready again. It takes a worried man, the prince say, to sing a worried song, while under the waters of Lake Minnetonka, the bass and their holes and the gobies and the shoals nibble at our old worries, swarm around our used worries. My stepsister wants the shoe to fit her worries. I swapped a cow for a handful of beans worries. Grandma, oh grandma, what big teeth you have worries. I've been left in the forest by my sad parents' worries. Skimmed from the top worries, scraped from the bottom worries, spooned from the middle, just good enough worries. There's worries now, the fish say, but there won't be worries long. The um, next piece is called Gladys Seated Next to Me at the Bar. Gladys seated next to me at the bar, turns, nods, says, can't remember if you've lost yours yet, salutes the air with her bottle, but my own dad passed this morning. Lowers the bottle, pulls at the neck, lay there for weeks, never moved, nothing to say, until today, opened his eyes, dark-sided dark, spoke as clear as day, there's the big ship come for me, guess it's time to go. Raises the bottle to order again, and that, as they say, was that. I close the sports section, offer condolences, my own story. A morning, I was maybe 12, how my mother entered the room, woke me, edge of the bed, hand through my hair, then in my hand. It's tender tightening, a gentle squeeze, then her story of the UFO, how it came in the night, three sharp, narc, not three sharp knocks on the roof, in the air, a feeling she called strangely compelled to go outside, stand in the yard, look up, a V-shape of green lights below a white one so bright she first thought it the moon. 
swore I couldn't leave you, I never would, though of course in the end she did. Asked if I heard anything, saw anything, anything odd at all, not to be frightened, just to tell her. Promised her I hadn't, though of course I had. Gladys nods, thumbs the quarters in front of her. Wheel and a wheel and a wheel and a wheel, just like in the Bible. Says, twice I saw my daddy cry. Both times it was here. First when Earnhardt hit the wall. Then when Junior won. Same race, same track. Three years to the day. Only sport he ever cared about. Go fast, turn left. Father's chasing sons. Pulled the quarters into a stack in front of her. Go play us some jukebox. Dolly. First with Porter, then alone. Tuesday's gone, blaze of glory. Something Bocephus, something by his daddy. That new one where the mouthy girl sings. I said I wouldn't do it, but I did it again. Um, I'm going to end with uh, one last poem uh, that kind of alternates between the stories of uh, Fannie Lou Hamer um, and Fannie Lou Hamer um, is the civil rights activist who worked for um, to register voters in Mississippi during Freedom Summer and then came and testified um, at the Democratic National Convention in uh, 1964. And uh, that her story is alternated uh, with the story of uh, Aretha Franklin, who is Aretha Franklin. So... Um, but before uh, I read that piece, uh, I want to thank the Pratt and uh, Shailene for having us here. And yeah, whoever made those beautiful um, uh, broadsides, I want to thank them. They're really nice. Um, I want to thank Jonah and Edgar. It's such a treat to get to hear them uh, both read. Um, and I want to thank all of you all for being here. It's a Wednesday night, and it's beautiful outside. So I say something good about America, right? But there's people here for... For um, and so this poem is called, Other People Call It America. The Reverend C.L. Franklin rode that great migration right out of Sunflower County. Car, then bus, bus, then train, Memphis, Buffalo, Detroit. Told the word as God revealed it, a theory word of God, the building word of God. Let God's word build until it broke wash over the heads of his little ones, Carl, Irma, Carolyn, Aretha, a wave that left them washed in the word. That wave left those children anointed. That same migration left the Townsends behind, rose up plenty, but the Townsend family stayed. All 20 children stayed, stayed to Sunflower County, stayed to sharecropping, stuck on Marlowe land. Strong family, mighty children, each one pick a couple hundred pounds a day, Every day, but Sunday, Sunday go to meeting day, Sunday for wearing the crown, Sunday all about the glory, meeting the place Fanny Lou met Pap. Aretha wanted to cross over, but not really leave, go, but take the gospel with her. Took a lot with her from the gospel, what a hat and fur say about a woman, why it's smart to get the cash up front, stash the cash in your purse, Prop the purse up top the piano, where the purse can always be seen. Wear a fur to show you conquered this world. Drop the fur to show you can leave this world behind. 
Miss Hamer wished to speak true. Make the world say what it said. Give up what it done. Took her purse with her to testify for what was in it, for what it said about her. Said, my name is Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer. Said, I live at 626 East Lafayette Street, Ruleville, Mississippi. Said, I question America. Said, 16 bullets was fired into the home for me. Said, our lives be threatened daily. Purse, say Sunflower County. Miss Hamer said, is this America? Miss Hamer spoke this to America. There was only three channels back then, so everybody heard it. Only three channels then, so everybody watched the same thing. Everybody watch it mean everybody talk about it. Miss Hamer put her purse up top the table, sat herself behind it, said these things to America. Everybody, even the president, heard her. Miss Hamer and her purse scare the president so bad, he took her right off the TV. Miss Franklin sang the first black president into the White House. Wore her coat, wore her hat, sang him right in the front door. Hat like a big tied bow. People lined up all down the mall. Set her purse on the chair. Watch that for me. Stood up to sing. Hand on her heart. Land where my father died, she sang. Let freedom ring, she sang. Let it ring, she sang. Let it ring. My country tis of thee, this song is called. Other people call it America. That's progress, right? Something like it. Ever north, ever north. R-E-S, Detroit, all gutted buildings. R-E-S, Flint, awash and leaded children. Detroit, one building aflame. Catch up the next. Flint, a city left dry at its bones. Miss Hamer, buried in Ruleville now. Easy walk, graveside to home. Made her house a daycare. I'm sick and tired, the headstones say, of being sick and tired. Miss Franklin sang the other day at the Kennedy Center, wore her fur out onto the stage, put her purse on top of the piano, sat herself down to play. Background singers say, Aoop, president set to crying. Background singers, Aoop again, honored white lady, proceed to lose her mind. Miss Franklin stand herself up. Miss Franklin walk away from that piano. Man come out behind her. Mr. Man gonna finish playing this song. You make me feel, she sang, and drop her fur to the floor. You make me feel, she sang, with her arm rose up in the air. You make me feel, she sang. You make me feel. Thank you. Amazing, thank you, Tanya. Um, so, if the poets could come up to the front, um, we're going to have a little bit of Q and A. So, I hope everybody has questions to ask. And I just want to remind you all, as they're coming up, that um, as you can hear, these are all wonderful. I mean, these poems are great, and they—they really—you get more and more out of them the more you read them, so I really encourage you to buy their books, and the books are $15 for all the books, and we're selling them in the back, so please consider purchasing a copy. Um, and I think I'm supposed to turn on the mics, but, um, and just to let you all know, we're recording for a podcast, um, so I'll bring you, um, no, I think I won't bring the mic. I think what we'll do is we'll just try to repeat the question, maybe, and, and then you can, I can give this. We were instructed. Can you hear us? No, maybe not. Yeah. I got the green light, but. You have the green light. Yeah. Oh yeah. Good. I think you're good. Okay. 
everybody has a microphone. Yeah, sure. Uh, I've had some stretches in my life that I've been lucky to be able to write more or less full time. And my schedule during during those stretches has always been get up in the morning whenever I wake up. We don't need to talk about what time. Uh, <laughs> and then I go to the coffee shop and I drink coffee and don't eat <laughs> breakfast. And I and I, I, I bring a book of poems and I and I read through it and inevitably something jumps out at me. You know, the phrase dark beer, for example. And I'm like, oh dark beer that's right that exists I should write something about that right <laughs> uh, it's, it's always something weird like that right something that you wouldn't think not particularly poetic um, and then uh, I write and I draft and draft and draft until I feel sick from too much coffee and no food <laughs> and then I then I go home and I uh, eat some breakfast and then uh, on a good day I'll revise in the afternoon but now I teach so much and I travel so much that I just try to write when I can you know I'll write on the plane I'll, I'll write on the bus um, um, uh, I wish I could say I'm more disciplined. You know, I don't put in a certain number of hours every day. I just uh, I try to stay ready for when uh, for when words start coming. I always think about my process when I was a kid. I, I don't know what the cartoon was. I think it was one of those like educational cartoons, and it was um, it was like a scientist, and he opened up the top of this machine, and he put in like a ham and a turkey <laughs> and 17 yeah. carrots and all these things and then out popped a little astronaut bar of food and that's what I always feel like as a, a writer like I just like have to put a million things in my head either by reading or watching or listening or thinking or whatever and then finally at some point there's like a little astronaut bar being formed in my head and it you know comes yeah. out as a poem so all of that is to say, like, I do not, like, write until I find the poem. Like, I just, I do a lot of things in my head mm -hmm. um, until I'm ready to write, until that feels. So that's, as uh, the longer I've lived, the better I've gotten at, like, doing that wherever the heck I am, you know, like, walking, driving. Yeah. So, yeah, wherever I am, and, yeah, you stop and you write something down. And so, yeah, yeah, it's not a very disciplined process, except putting things in. Yeah, I agree with what both of you said. I'm not very disciplined at writing at all. Um, <laughs> How did we get these books? I don't know. It's kind of happened. You invite us anywhere. No, to I, <laughs> I have a running list um, of like uh, 60 pages on my laptop, and very often I open that up and I see what jumps out. I read books. Uh, there's a poem that actually went into the broadside, thrashing. I love that word, thrashing. I was like, how can I get thrashing in a poem, mm -hmm. you know? So sometimes I would just start writing around the word thrashing, and images and other phrases that I've had very often pop up. But like you said, you kind of use whatever's in the refrigerator, mm -hmm. and uh, you hope that something pops out that you can eat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or a robot. Or a robot, yes. <laughs> uh, I think that 
<laughs> Comedians are so much meaner than poets. Can you imagine, like, if like I got up after Edgar and I was like, now I'm gonna read your poem. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of jealous if you can ride on the plane. Can you ride on planes and like travel? Sure, sure. sure. Yeah. I'm too terrified the plane's gonna fall out of the <laughs> sky. Oh, I know. Well, yeah, it distracts me yeah, from the mortal. That's terror. that's a challenge. Do have a backup yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's the kind of thing that you set out to to do or, or to be. I I don't know. I don't want to speak for y'all, but I I just fell in love with language and I fell in love with the small space of a poem and what I could try to make happen in that space. And I became obsessed with with looking at the world really closely, looking at people really closely, and trying to figure out what they're about and and the, I don't know. Get into the complexity of. Uh, of the world that's shimmering just behind the surface of it, right? Which appears sometimes flat and unnuanced. Um, yeah, I just got obsessed with it. Like like people get obsessed with wood carving or ping pong or something, right? It's not practical at all. I just, uh, <laughs> I don't know, here I am now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know, you gotta figure out, you have to write the poems that make you happy. I think it's, um, Poetry does a great job of um, appearing monotone, right? Like, here's what poems sound like now, or here's what poems do now, or, you know, there's a kind of um, sameness to it at all. So, like, don't get bogged down in that. Like, you gotta figure out, you gotta figure out what you're, what you're right. You, you don't do this, so, like, you should only make yourself happy, right? You should not be worried about making anyone else happy, because there is no, glory there is no fame there is no, no money there is no anything at the end except your giant box of poems so that box of poems should make you really really happy yeah. absolutely and that box of poems really reminds you of uh, your other lives in some ways too mm -hmm. like your yeah. other past experiences i think yeah. i fell in love with poetry because like edgar mentioned i love language and how you can play with it and they become, you know, sometimes they're forecasts and sometimes they're chronicles of um, the past. And so it's a wonderful way to, after you get some poems, to take a look back and see what you've done and moments in your life that perhaps you've forgotten. Yeah. I want to say one more thing, too. I, I had a really cool experience back there. We are in the green room, and a friend, an old friend of mine, came by who I hadn't seen in like 10 years. And I used to play music with him. I used to be in a bunch of, a bunch of different bands over the course of my life. And I, and I quit the band that I was in with him to take my writing more seriously because I got to have more control mm. over it, you know? I got to say what stayed and what, and what went. I think that I'm more oriented as a person toward a solo practice, uh, and that made me not the best bandmate, but, uh, but uh, I don't know, more suited to write poems. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, I can. I mean, I, I can talk about my experience trying to get my my dad down on the page. You know, it, to to write poems about him required a couple different ways of looking at him, right? Um, I I I had to think of him both as the very flawed and fraught person that I knew, and imagine him as a younger person before I before I knew him, before I was born, right? And I had to imagine sort of the best parts of him and put those into conversation with the parts of him that were that were uh, you know so limited and and uh, and violent and sad and scary, right? And so to write a that's something I love about writing poems about people. So it forces you to look at them, really, really look at them and consider them both for what they're showing you and for what they're not showing you, right? And to think about their motivations and what have, what have shaped them as people. I think writing poetry has made me a more empathetic person and a person that's more interested in, uh, in nuance. Does that answer your question? Maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> mm, yeah. Yeah, I think for me, like I'm really interested in, in, uh, in. I really like the way poetry can kind of preserve people's voices or stories, you know, kind of capture those. But it's not about, like you said, like does it help you sort of process or understand it better? Like I don't. To me, poetry isn't really about kind of like understanding or getting to the right answer. Like here is the role that you know, this person played in my life. It's more about sort of the process. It's like if it's it's about like it's like if you did a math problem, like poetry isn't the answer, right, with the right answer there. It's really just about the sort of like process, you know, like trying to figure out what it is. So you have to know some things about math, but you're not hung up on the end result, right? It's just kind of like the the process. So it helps me really think about people and it does feel very preservative snapshot kind of preservative like here is a moment uh, or a story or a voice um, and I sense that that probably then means that story is important to me but I'm not really interested in like getting to the answer right why do I remember this moment of my childhood instead of another or why do I like this person instead of that person like, I don't want to understand that, um, but, yeah. Yeah, I think in some ways, um, this first poems in this first book have helped me understand my relationship to my parents a little bit more. But I'm sort of excited to see what's happening after these poems. My father passed away, and that's in here. But now the reflection, like years after, I'm looking at him a different way. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I'm sort of interested to see what are the ways in which the language I use to describe him, if he pops up, which he already has in some of my future work, and a more of a, of a closer look at the impact that he did have, how that will change. So I guess in that way, the poetry offers, you know, offers that funnel, sort of that tube, and to sort of put the, put the life in and um, see what surfaces. But I'm interested to see how that's going to change over the years. Yeah. I'm lucky enough to do it. Thank you. 
almost never feel satisfaction mm-hmm. about <laughs> full stop. No, I, I almost never feel satisfaction about something that I've written or that, uh, that I've gotten it right, you know? But I think I have a real stubbornness and tenacity to, to keep at it and to try and to get it as close as I can. Yeah, I think that keeping at it, right, is the thing. And oftentimes it's, I find that it's it's that you're t- heading at it from the wrong angle, right? Like you're trying to see it from straight on and it's like one of those, you know, magic eyes or whatever, right, that you can't see. So like maybe you've got to tell the story by not telling the story, right? Or telling why you're thinking about the story or tell somebody else's story entirely differently, you know, like. Like there's there is that kind of like if it's not working in you know one way, there's probably a way in, but that way that you're going isn't the way. Yeah. And I think it's okay to let time pass too if you're trying to write about something that happened yeah. to you or whatever, right? There's a distance that can allow the lens of the poem to focus, right? And uh, if you try to write about it too soon, it'll be too blurry or it'll be too flat. You know, there'll be something wrong with. I'm really, <laughs> I like this photograph of a, of the poem as a camera. Um, but yeah, I don't know, give yourself permission, right, to, to uh, not be in a big rush to write about something as soon as it happens. Yeah, yeah. I love the poem, uh, 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird by Stevens, oh, just because it offers those different ways of looking at it or different lenses. Very often I try to write a poem about A, and it comes out as a poem about B. So maybe if I try to write about B, it'll come out as A, right? So yeah, approach it from different angles, and I'm never wholly satisfied because they always end up a book that I that I can't stop gifting people is uh, called Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude mm-hmm. by Ross Gay. It, uh, it changed the way I think about poems. Mm. Uh, I can't say enough good about it. I also, I, I just discovered this story. I read a lot of fiction, too. I, I write a lot of narrative poems, and so often fiction is as helpful to me as, as, uh, as poems are. Um, and there's this writer, Christine Scutt, who I really love, S-C-H-U-T-T, Christine Scutt. And the book that I'm reading right now is called uh, A Day, A Night, Another Day, Summer. <laughs> What a great title. A day, a night, another day, summer. That's good. I just started um, uh, Sigrid Nunez's The Friend, which won the National Book Award right last year. Um, I haven't finished, so maybe she's going to let me down. But so far, it's super fantastic. There's time. And and I'm very excited about it. It's one of the things that I've picked up and read recently that I'm super excited about. Um, So, yeah, it's good. And, you know, I'm... Yeah, I'm going to stop there. <laughs> um, I believe you mentioned it, Tanya, in your blog, Ocean Vuong's On Earth Are Briefly Gorgeous, mm. which is wonderful. And I always highly recommend anything by Ann Carson, specifically mm. the autobiography of the endless inspiration. Cool. <laughs> um, I can go first. 
Probably have it too. So um, I'm going to finish with a poem. Almost, I've found um, in a book, there's a, always a poem that I come to think of as the transition poem that's kind of like pointing the way towards what the next project is going to be. Um, but it just got in the, was left behind in the last book. So it's kind of the when I obviously started to think about the things that are going to be the next book. So right now, I'm uh, almost ready to start writing. Um, but I've been thinking a lot about country music and the radio and the way that those, uh, the intersection of those two things. And this then, since that's really what I read and thought about and I'm going to write about in some way, I think about this poem as the transition poem. So I thought I'd read it since it's pointing forward. And it's called Bobby Bear. My mother seldom drank, but there may have been drink taken the night she accosted Bobby Bear in the bar of the Derby, the place in town you went if you didn't want pizza. A night out, no kids, and there was Bobby Bear. Now Bobby Bear, America, is one of your finest song interpreters. Things change, how I got to Memphis, 500 miles, streets of Baltimore, though probably he got riches from drop kick me Jesus through the goalposts of life. A song not as funny as you think it might be. A song Bear sang straight, respectful. Bear Sr., I might note, as Bobby Bear Jr. also makes his living as a musician, although Jr. himself admits, my dad is three times the singer I am. So you can imagine my mother's surprise at running into a great American artist in the bar of the Derby, a place mostly known as the home of the horseshoe, an open-faced sandwich consisting of meat, french fries, and hot liquid cheese. Hamburger usually, but sometimes ham or pork tenderloin. Everyone makes it their own way. Everyone thinks theirs is the best. The secret isn't in the meat, though. The secret is the richness of the cheese sauce, the crispiness of the fries. Maybe Bear ate one. If he didn't, he should have, though cheese has been known to clog a singer's throat. Anyway, there she is, my mother, out to dinner, when going out to dinner really meant something. I mean, you might grab a hot dog from the snack bar during Monday Night League or pizza from Angelo's to mark a child's birthday, but going out-out didn't happen often, which might explain the drink taken by my seldom-drinking mother. Night out, no kids, husband, friends, and now this right in front of you, a man you likely heard on the radio driving into town, a man you might have seen on Hee Haw standing right in front of you. Bobby Bear, she yelled, what are you doing in Taylorville, Illinois? Later, she found out he was playing two nights at the Christian County Fair, Saturday, Sunday, two shows a day. Bobby Bear, she said with a shake of her head, just what the hell are you doing here? And to his credit, Bobby Bear the Elder didn't ignore her, roll his eyes, patronize her, pass her off, didn't pat her on the arm, flirt, pretend to flirt, didn't try to pick her up. From here, from now, I can see it. I can see my mother was a looker. Nope, old Bobby Bear, great American singer, looked her straight in the eye, raised his glass, and offered what our family still uses as a kind of toast. Lady, the real question is, what the hell are you, what the hell is anyone doing here at all? Uh, this is a new, I'm going to read a new poem. I'm going to read a poem that I, I wrote maybe a month ago. And it's in a, it's in a different style than a lot of stuff in the book. Uh, it has no punctuation. 
except at the beginning there's a question mark. Everything else is unpunctuated. And it's fun to read because I, I, uh, I have to read it kind of fast and, and breathlessly. Uh, yeah, this is called Night Heron. And a night heron is a, is a kind of heron, but it's very small uh, and hunched and looks kind of evil. Uh, and they're all over Oakland, California, which is where I used to live. Um, so night heron. What now? You'd flown in from a Midwest city named for its rowdy summertime abundance, lying, saying you were coming to visit friends in San Francisco, and I had taken the train from chilly Oakland to meet you, and we rode north, carefully not touching. I took you to the tiny one-room apartment I had escaped to after a bad breakup and fried us nervously some potatoes in a cast-iron pan, a little rosemary, which we did not eat because you said, I have to do something, and kissed me hard, and we went in a rush to the mattress I bought off a guy in a semi-famous band and had only the day before gotten off the floor and onto the pinewood bed frame I'd found and hoisted on my back and carried down out of North Berkeley, weaving through the side streets, towing the center to avoid snagging the Buckeyes leaning out. It was about suffering in public. It was dramatic, sure, but the dramas of my life those days were pitched as high as I could stand, higher sometimes. I said, breathless, I want to taste you, and you said, please, yes, and later, out at the edge of the lake, huddled against the damp wind, hot grease soaking through a paper bag, licking salt from each other's fingers obscenely, a night heron peered up at us from the reeds, small, hunched, dipping its shining beak in the shallows, not particularly beautiful, but a heron, nevertheless, the same one we were sure we saw perched on the awning outside the theater, whose marquee shouted slogans like, we live in a fake democracy, and prevent unwanted presidencies with hand-counted paper ballots. And later, the cabin we rented with friends in Calaveras, snowmelt vaulting the redwoods to magnificent heights, drinking rye, and each of us practicing our best wolf howl at the waxing moon, which was silly, yes, but once we started, it became impossible to stop, waking up hoarse and happy, and later you moved west, and we lived together in a ground floor apartment anyone walking past could see into, and later my father died, and at almost the same age yours did, and both from drink and an unnameable sadness, I went back to Connecticut alone, three and a half days, my mother said, before anyone had found him in his apartment on the far side of town and going with my brother, which we should not have done, and dragging the mattress out and clearing the maggots off the ceiling with a shop vac and so on. And later, you came. We walked through the basement of my mother's house. I wanted to show you where for a while he lived and how and you slung your arm around my waist and we moved slowly together, bare fluorescent bulb shining on the Anheuser bush ashtray, the carpentry tools, my inheritance, the ratty couch he crashed on for years. You held up an old Belafonte Calypso record he loved and sang out softly, jump in the line, rock your body in time, and I sang back softly, okay, I believe you dancing a little together in the musty half-light, and after a while, Mom at the top of the stairs shouting, what are you kids doing down there? And climbing the steps, you pinch my elbow and ask, are you okay? And I hear myself say, yes, which is not a lie, though I'm not listening. I'm letting myself feel how astonishing, how astonishing what our love can make of a place like that. 
So I'll read the poem that was printed on the broadside. I'm also writing a lot about uh, the Chesapeake and being a Maryland boy, and there's a lot of uh, fish and light, <laughs> sea life. The other life. Before I leave, I want to know about the other life. I want to hear my name from another animal's mouth. I want to be the tender talons of coral or the delicacy of a crab's underbelly. I want to be the blue fish in the blue ocean, all current and unhunted. I want shimmer scales and fins that circle seagrass. Would I have the same heart, the same red muscle that pumps too faintly to hear its own thrashing? This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.